Well, I've just, over the years, I've lost track of who I really am. This is Melinda. I'm really good at, you know, like I said, fitting in with other people and becoming fast friends with people. But it's like when someone really asks me, well, how do you feel? Or what does that look like for you? I have to really think about, is I am I making this up? Throughout her life, Melinda was a master of hiding her real feelings, even from herself. What do I feel? You know, I didn't, I lost track of what feelings really were and what I really liked as a person. Keeping herself compartmentalized helped her win friends and gain career success, but it came at a cost. Welcome to Voices of Recovery. I'm your host, Jackie Danziger. This week, we ask the question, what happens when an addict develops behaviors that are simultaneously beneficial and destructive? Her story starts where many addiction stories do. From a very young age, Melinda felt different. So just a constant awareness of the differences between me and my friends, just a constant feeling of emptiness or buzzing inside um, that I didn't quite fit in. I zeroed in mostly on my appearance or my weight. And honestly, even back in fourth grade, the number on the scale. For you and your friends, were you all weighing yourself? How did that become a thing? So honestly, I never thought about it until I moved um, to a different school in the fourth grade. And the girls that I were friends with um, were. And so then, of course, I did. And I didn't even think a big deal of it until we started comparing. On the scale, there was never a significant difference. But in her mind, it was enough to separate her from her peers and reinforce the feeling she already had of being uncomfortable inside her own skin. Now, instead of playing outside and just loving school, her focus shifted to her body and her feelings of inadequacy. I started at that point internalizing those feelings and just kind of trying to push them away rather than think about them or talk about them. So how did that work out? Um, not so good. It was my first coping skill and it um, didn't work out so well. <laughs> I think that was the beginning of me um, being a chameleon. So anything that I thought set me apart, I pushed away, that I thought I was different about me. Instead of talking about it, um, I just stuffed down and I just became who everybody else was so I could blend in rather than feel different. Were you successful in that? Like, did that actually, did you find that that benefited you? Yeah, I definitely did. I, I have, even now, I mean, it's one of the things that I can do to be able to insert myself in a scene and, um, or a group of people or whatever it may be, and especially back then, and make friends fast because I was similar or I liked the same things that other people did. And I was really good at pretending and hiding. Um, and I, like I said, I always had lots of good friends, lots of, I don't know if I had good friends. I had lots of friends. She may have had friends, but it was hard to tell if they were genuine because she was stuck in that chameleon routine. But it seemed to work. So Melinda made a habit of changing herself in order to fit in. And soon she started to exert that control over other aspects of her life. I started cutting out foods. Um, that was back in the low-fat days. So you just cut out fat, you know, um, low-fat diets. So I counted, started counting fat calories and fat grams and um, just became really controlling over external things to try to make myself feel better. And so that happened really early, probably in sixth, sixth grade. Um, and then in seventh grade, I started really dieting and started seeing results. And so started people started you know, saying, oh, you look so good. And so I 
um, focused on the fact that losing weight meant I look good. I get attention about me rather than trying to fit in with everybody else. I finally felt like I was in control of who I was rather than out of control, trying to make other people like me or feel like I was actually part of. Restricting food gave Melinda the feeling of control she was looking for. Then she discovered alcohol. That made me feel almost the same way that it did when I was able to control my feelings with food or restriction of food or increasing exercise. So it was like in junior high, grade school and junior high, it was the food. And then in high school, it was partying and alcohol. Melinda used drinking to ease her loneliness and quiet the voices that said she was different, but she never allowed it to affect her commitment to her academics. What I didn't lose track of was that I liked school and I was able to kind of concentrate and really like my truth was in my school and in my studies and I like to read and stuff like that. Um, but as I grew, I was just kind of sliding through life um, superficially. I never really dug deep. Throughout high school, it was always just um, work hard, play hard. I was a really, really good student, straight A's, always um, went to class and felt and that was easy for me. And then on the weekends, I had a lot of friends. We went and partied and we partied hard for 15 and 16 year olds, um, but had was still having so much fun doing it. I was able to then create the skill of compartmentalizing my life. So I had really good student Melinda, party Melinda. I even separated my party friends at a different school. Her early experiments in control had prepared her for this new phase, where she split into two different versions of herself. She essentially used self-discipline and emotional barriers to uphold the illusion that she had it all together. It felt, at first, like it was working. It felt, it felt, it felt good um, until, until it was exhausting, you know, until all I could think about was what was I going to eat next, what was I going to manipulate next with my diet to change the way I looked. Um, but I don't remember it feeling super exhausting till my college years. When I went to college, um, studies got harder um, and my friends were still back home. And so there was another shift. Um, it was hard for me to separate those things out. And so when I was in, um, I went to school for pharmacy um, and so there was a lot of, a lot of extra structure, a lot of extra things I needed to do outside of just class. And so I wasn't able to really, um, separate those out like I did in the first place. And people started noticing, um, you know, wow, she really parties a lot, but her grades are still good. Like, how does she do that? And then, um, over time I was trying to control both of those things simultaneously in the same world. And I kind of just felt like I was losing control. Did people make these observations to you? Are they like, Melinda, you really seem to be able to party. How do you keep that up? Yeah, my yeah, the people that I went to school with. And so, um, and I thought that was cool at first. Like, yeah, I can do this. It's easy. Like, you guys, what are you doing? You know? And um, but all the while feeling pretty lonely. Um, and then after a while, I knew I couldn't party anymore like that, or I wasn't gonna make it because it's just I just didn't have time. And so the shift then came back, okay. I'm still feeling so anxious inside. Like there's a buzzing of just discontent. I don't, the only, I went back to eating and exercising. And so I started going to the gym and working out with ROTC program at 5.30 in the morning, um, eating really, really, really healthy. Everyone thought, oh, wow, you've really 
change for the better. You're eating healthy. Like you're losing a lot of weight. My heart rate was so low. It was like in the forties and they thought they were just like, wow, it's because you're such a good athlete. Well, you know, there was other things going on. So on the surface, because I never got really, really thin because that's just not my body type. I appeared to be very healthy. Um, and then my hair started falling out. Well, for somebody who is sensitive to her appearance, how did it feel when your hair started to fall out? Um, I was secretly like, oh, wow, I'm thin. Like I expect this, you know, it means I'm like, I'm on, on the right path. I wasn't, it did not scare me back at that point in my life. Were you just like, I'll get a wig if I have to? Um, no, I just knew that, um, probably that I, I didn't really see any consequence towards it except for I was thin and my clothes fit well. I was completely, my health was completely irrelevant. I was just so wrapped up in trying to control like that inner beast that was always so, um, just so uncomfortable that it was just the f a form of being in so much control over my body that I felt, um, I felt good about it. Losing her hair was one thing, but losing control at school was quite another. Being a strong student was a huge part of her identity, but her grades were suffering because she couldn't think. Professors approached her to figure out what was going on. That scared me a little bit because I was such a, and still am, a people pleaser. I want people to like be happy with whatever it is that I'm doing. And so when they started noticing that, that, then I thought, okay, um, now I'm doing something wrong or it's not good enough anymore. What am I going to do? And so when I tried to start pulling back those reins and taking a look at it, then I started gaining weight because I started eating again and I, and it, and then I felt out of control. And so Right about that time, I called my dad and I was like, I can't do this. I can't do both of these things. I cannot study and I cannot keep track of how I feel. Like, I'm, I don't know what to do. And I remember him saying, just breathe. Like, you're going to be fine. And during all this time, I mean, I've had therapists since I was started pharmacy school because I was, you know, always trying to, I was always trying to fix myself. On the outside, I looked cool and collected and stuff, but I knew something was going on. I just didn't know the ramifications. And so I was constantly going and seeking outside therapy help, but not giving up the information that I needed to give up. I wasn't giving them the whole picture, like not knowing that just before all this eating stuff could came up again, I was partying and drinking myself into blackouts and, um, you know, all the other stuff that comes with that type of behavior, I guess. So when I called my dad and told him that, then I called my therapist and told her and she's like, okay, it's time for you to go to inpatient eating disorder. A co-occurring disorder is a mental health issue, like depression or an eating disorder, that presents alongside a substance use disorder. They can also be experiential, which is to say that they can result from a trauma encountered, such as abuse or the death of a loved one. They're very common, and in many cases, people start using alcohol and drugs to escape the pain caused by these mental health issues. With her eating disorder, a lot of Melinda's behavior had been hidden, and her entry into treatment meant coming clean about what was going on. And it was the first time I told my parents, or tried to tell them how I felt about food. What did you tell them? Well, just that, because um, my dad's like, well, why, why can't you just stop, um, why can't you just stop eating, like when you're, when you're full, like, because there was binge episodes and stuff, and um, you know, my little brother, well, sister, why don't you just eat normally when you're hungry. You know, like they were so confused. They have no idea. They still don't get it. And that's totally fine. Um, 
But what they did know was that it made my life completely unmanageable and I couldn't live like a normal person with the, my thoughts around food. And what do you think it is that people don't understand about eating disorders? To the person who doesn't struggle with that, it's just a part of daily routine. You eat, you don't eat. When you, you eat when you're hungry, you don't eat when you're full. Um, and it's just a no, it's not even a thought. It's not, but when you're so wrapped up in it, um, it's just an obsession. It's compulsion. It's it's just all, in, it encompasses every, at least for me, it encompasses every part of my being just to get up and put my feet on the floor and, and carry on a daily routine. And so, I mean, unless you've ever experienced that, there's no way you would, you would know, you know, it's, I would never expect anyone to really get it. There are a surprising number of men and women who report body image issues and eating disorders alongside their substance abuse. Family members often struggle to understand, which makes fellowship that much more important in treatment. So when Melinda found a friend with similar issues, the camaraderie was healing. It was my first feeling, okay, of I'm not alone, but at the same time, because I had gained some weight going in. I was like, here I am, different again. These kids, these people are anorexic. I'm um, a fat bulimic, but I'm not really bulimic because I don't even um, purge. It's just that like I exercise a lot, you know, all these I'm different. And so, um, but what I do remember is finding somebody that I could connect with. So there was somebody, that one person that I honestly felt like I had um, a connection with. She knew my whole self. And so it was my first real friend. I remember it so clearly. We were all sitting in the um, in the lunchroom, introducing ourselves, and um, everyone was like just really shy and timid and all so thin. And she was more my body type. And she was like, "Hi, my name is Andrea. I'm a bulimic." And I was like, and "She." And it was just like so funny to me. I'm like, "Same here." You know what I mean? And it was just like, "Wow." You know, she's just somebody who just knows like it's time for like for something else to change. And like she wasn't shy of who she was. And I wanted to be her really. Like, it was like, I want what you have already. And so young, at a young age, I just knew that there was just something about her that I knew that I liked. Did it make it easier to, to stick with the program by having a friend? Oh yeah. Um, we both wanted to get better. A lot of the other people there were really young, younger than us. And they were there because their parents put them there. We were there because we wanted to be there. We needed to be there. And so, um, she was somebody who I could, um, hang out with after treatment was over and we tried to help each other, you know, eating right, not worrying about how we felt after we ate, just knowing we ate what we were supposed to. All I know is that I found somebody who was a lot like me, who, and we were able to help each other because we could understand each other. She left treatment and returned to normal life, trying all the while not to fall into old habits. I was getting ready to go back to school the next year, so making sure I had all my ducks in a row with that, and trying to get back on track with some sort of a normal quote unquote, routine where I could live life, eat without obsession, and then incorporate exercise as well and not drink and go party. So it was like I had a, I had a lot going on. I had a boyfriend at the time who was a personal trainer and I had met him at the gym because I was spending eight hours of my day at the gym. So I would not go to school sometimes, but I would literally be there for eight hours. When I went back to school that next year, um, I was still very, very miserable and uncomfortable in my own skin. I guess what I did learn from that that um, that treatment center was that no matter how you feel in your skin, you just keep going. You just keep you you do it anyways as far as daily stuff. And so I went back to school, and Andrea, the girl that I met in treatment, moved with me, and I just 
I just showed up even though I felt so ugly. I just did it anyway. Did it help to have her to come home to? Oh yeah, for sure. And not like, it wasn't like my eating disorder behavior was gone. I was just like, I'd come home and I'd be like, ah, I ate a whole box of cereal. She's like, I had a whole box of Nutrigrain bars. And we're like, God, why do we do that? You know, able to talk to somebody, um, go on a walk. It was just like, I didn't feel alone and I couldn't, I didn't have to hide things. So it was, it was really helpful. When it was time to return to school, Melinda doubled down on academic ambitions and embraced a larger than average workload. I wanted to finish school. Like I was very goal oriented. So I, there was no way that I was not going to finish. And so I just wanted it to come and so I could start. And um, because I didn't want my go, taking a year off and going into treatment to feel like I was a failure, um, at that point, instead of getting my bachelor's in pharmacy, I'd changed programs to get the, my doctorate in pharmacy. So I was just like, oh, it'll be, it's actually like a blessing in disguise. I'm going to, now this program's available and I'm going to get a better degree because of it. So just kind of pushing myself. So um, I was excited to go back, you know, just be, because I wanted to make sure that I did it really. For the first year, Melinda stayed strong in her sobriety and healthy living habits. In her second year, however, things began to shift. Andrea moved back home, and Melinda made a new batch of friends who partied like she used to party. It didn't take long for her to pick up where she'd left off. I started partying again, and it just took off right where it left off. When I was planning on going out and drinking, um, there was no way I was eating. You know, so it would be I would completely restrict all day long so I can go out and drink. And then, of course, that leads, leads to blackouts, you know, alcohol and empty stomach. And then the next day it was a fight to not binge because I was so hungover. It was at this point that Melinda met a man whose bad behaviors matched all her bad ideas. I knew he was bad for me and I knew I was bad for him. You know what I mean? But it was just like we, were, we clicked. We were like a match. Like, oh, wow, you're drinking just as fast as me at the bar. Like, who are you? And was there any part of you, I mean, that sounds like it's kind of a relationship that part of the element is being a little bit out of control. Was that an appeal? Oh, yeah. Um, I totally thought I was way cooler than I really was. <laughs> Absolutely. It, it was fun. It was like lots of traveling, you know, lots of cool parties. I, I just thought he was cool. You know, I thought it was lots of people that were just as out of control and wanted to party just as hard as I did. People noticed the shift in Melinda's behavior, particularly her mom. I didn't notice it, but she said that that's when something something happened to me then. This is only the beginning, and I hadn't I didn't see it at all at first. We ended up moving in together. I was constantly kicking him out. Um, I mean, I identified him as an alcoholic, knowing inside that I was all the while through this seven years. This is a seven-year relationship. I remember one time letting him know that I thought he needed to go get help. I handed him an Alcoholics Anonymous book and said to go to a meeting, and he was just like, okay, I'll do it. And while he was at his meetings, I would read the book and I'd be like, well, this is who I am, but I'm not ready for it. So that was four years before I got sober, but, but knowing that I needed to be there. But I remember reading the stories and, you know, seeing people's journeys, like how it doesn't start out as alcoholism. It starts out as like other issues and then the progression and then, you know, so that I could really relate with. Once again, she was split in two. One part of her recognized herself in the big book, but the other part of her, the one that said, I'm not ready yet, was stronger. Melinda described this as a major aha moment, but it was one that she wasn't ready to act on at the time. She tried to set rules for her use, made and broke promises to herself, 
She eventually ended things with the hard-partying boyfriend and tried getting sober on her own, but ultimately fell into her old pattern and got into a new, even more toxic relationship. Family and friends were worried. But by then, Melinda was so detached from her feelings that she was unreachable. My mom was super worried. She would come over to my house every morning just to make sure I was alive, you know. Um, but I didn't care. I was a totally different person. I was super detached. My mom said, you couldn't see my soul anymore. Like, it, it was just a real scary time for everybody else. But everybody was um, tiptoeing around because I did not care. Like, I was just like, get out. I don't care about you. Leave. That just sounds so profoundly different than the Melinda you were describing earlier that was like, I cared so much what people thought and about being able to maintain a certain appearance. Mm -hmm. I mean, were you aware of that shift? No, not at all. It just, it was like I was a complete, I had so much lack of emotion. Over the course of four years of partying, it became too difficult to hold on to the different versions of herself that allowed her to pass through daily life. The foundation that high-achieving, good student Melinda had built, began to erode. The balance of drinking and then getting up and working went out of whack. With everything that she had built for herself in jeopardy, Melinda was finally ready to take another look at treatment. She checked in at Serenity Lane, made it through detox, and then moved to Excel. I loved that program. It was, um, it was just eye-opening for me, and I felt like I wasn't alone as far as screwing up what I had worked so hard for. There's other people. This disease is bigger than that. It's bigger than what you've done or what you're doing, you know. Everyone going through um, addiction, regardless of what, where their path has taken them, professionally, academically, whatever, has that same spiritual void. Intellectually, I know that we've just chatted for an hour to answer this question. But if someone right now were to say, Linda, you had an advanced degree, you're, you're smart, you have all these opportunities. How did you get there? Do you feel like, is there an answer to that question at this point? Not an easy one or a direct one. I mean, it's so much bigger than, than, than that, than the advanced degree. It started so much earlier, that hole in my heart, the hole in my soul that I was trying to fill, you know, and it, it progressed and drugs became part of it just as a, um, you know, a symptom of the disease. I remember going into my, um, to my, groups. This was outpatient. And I was just like talking so fast and I can't figure out why I'm feeling this way and my balance and I'm going to die. And one of my counselors at the time said to me, you know, you're not bipolar. You don't have the personality disorder. I was constantly trying to diagnose myself. She's like, you have a spiritual malady. She's like, that's it. Stop. And like, that was a turning point for me because I was like, okay, that sums it up. We, we have a spiritual malady. That's where the core, the core um, issue is. At least that's how I identify with it. And it doesn't matter what walk of life we come from, that's the core. Melinda came to realize that treating this spiritual malady was the key to finding lasting recovery. But she had to accept that she was not in control in order to put this lesson into action. And she couldn't do that until she was really ready. Do you think that there's anything that you could have had earlier to help you treat the eating disorder that could have prevented you from, from moving on to hard drugs? I don't think so. I I think I think if I would have considered going to treatment or even popped my head into an um, Alcoholics Anonymous room right when I was having telling my boyfriend to go do it, I might I, at that point I was old enough 
and aware enough, I might've gotten some of the tools early enough to get sober before that part of my disease was progressed to, but not back then. Melinda had success working the steps around both her substance abuse and her eating disorder. She knows that both problems sprang from the same core emotional issues. She must treat both if she is to be solid in her recovery. Through my eating disorder, you know, I push people away um, just like I did with my drug abuse. Maybe not, it wasn't so blatant because it's on a different level, but I mean, really, I never let my mom in. I, I always kept people at arm's length, you know what I mean, growing up. I really focus on making my friendships real now, you know, instead of superficial and trying to think about myself or the way I, I look first, you know, it's more living amends. It's, it was, it's never been separate for me, I guess. Once I did the steps around my eating disorder, it was finally apparent to me that drugs and alcohol and eating is one and the same. It's the same disease. It's just symptoms of the same disease. And it was huge for me because ever since then, I mean, of course I struggle with body image all the time, but I do not live the same way I did before around food. It does not control me anymore. Um, it gives me the chills just thinking about it because from that moment, I was able to put a filter on the way I saw things through recovery. And I have been at so much more peace since then. Part of the peace Melinda experiences now in her recovery comes from a spirituality that she never had growing up. For her, it's not specifically religious, but it's a profound sense of balance and a connection with nature that gives her something to hold on to in difficult moments. Melinda came to realize and ultimately trust the fact that all feelings truly do pass. So many of her actions were, and sometimes still are, motivated by uncomfortable feelings. Learning to respond to those feelings was huge for her recovery. Today, rather than turning to an unhealthy coping mechanism from her past, like drinking, using, binging, or over-exercising, she's able to identify that her discomfort is due to a feeling that doesn't necessarily need to be numbed. Sometimes, when that feeling is clear, she practices mindful breathing to bring herself to a physically present state and then accept the emotion. In other cases, it's a little more abstract, and she can either choose to sit with the feeling and allow it to pass, or use a healthy coping mechanism to work through it. Her healthy coping mechanisms vary, although they're all spiritually based. She said the most effective tool for her is reaching out to her higher power through nature, trusting that she's never given more than she can handle and turning her fear into faith. She's also found balance within exercise. Getting outside to jog with a healthy mindset has been a major success in both trusting and respecting her body again. Melinda never thought she'd be able to find that balance and described it as truly a miracle, but one that she was only able to experience after working the 12 steps with her sponsor. The 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous and Eating Disorder Anonymous opened her mind and allowed her to believe in something greater than herself and to accept herself in any given moment. She told me, I don't hate the person that stares back at me in the mirror anymore. I love her. Voices of Recovery was created by Monique and Jackie Danziger and is produced by Serenity Lane Drug and Alcohol Treatment Centers. Writing and production assistance by Monique Danziger. 
James Tyson is our production coordinator and script supervisor. Our show is edited by me, Jackie Danziger. Our theme and much of the music in this episode was composed by Sammy Gallo with additional tracks by George Polly. Thank you as always to everyone at Serenity Lane who helps make the show possible. Like us on Facebook and Instagram for teasers and episode extras. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're currently listening so that you can get new episodes every Tuesday in your feed. If you want to support our work or help others find the show, please take a minute to rate and review us. There's a link for that in the show notes. We'll see you next week for more stories of rock bottoms, moments of clarity, and life after addiction.